Hi, everyone, and welcome to HBR Now. I'm Adi Ignatius, Editor-in-Chief of Harvard Business Review, and my co-hosts are Joshua Mock, who heads Product and Innovation at HBR, and Octavia Gordima, an author and the founder of the 2010 Agency. This is our last show of the season, um, so we're going to take a break for a while after this, but we have a very special guest, and uh, many, many, many of you who've signed up for this show pre-signed up for it. And our guest is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the foremost expert on COVID-19 in the US. And we've just heard who had his second vaccine, his booster vaccine today. So we're gonna bring him in in a second and ask him questions. And I urge all of you who are watching us to submit your own questions in the comment box. But before we do that, let's hear from um, our sponsor, Accenture. Change is all around us. Shaped by technology and human ingenuity, we can make it work for you and your business. So we launched this show back in April. It was originally called HBR Quarantine. And we launched it to try to connect with all of you, um, many of you working from home, trying to give you insights on how the world was changing, what in the world was next. Um, then we launched a second season when we realized that's still where we were. We were all kind of stuck at home and trying to figure out what to do and, and what's next. So we've had a series of, of, of experts giving insight on the most topical uh, issues of our, of our time, the pandemic, diversity in the Black Lives Matter movement, the, uh, uh, the U.S. election politics. And Octavia, let me ask you, I mean, are you, um, you know, you've been a co-host for the second season. Um, how do you think we've done in terms of what we've tried to deliver here? Well, so much has happened in the world since we started our second season in October. And I'm really proud that we've been able to have so many conversations that matter during so much going on. And I've loved the thoughtful questions that we've received along the way from everyone watching. My favorite moment was... Um, episode two with Nubar FIN from Moderna. And we had that question from an eighth grader, Christian from Las Vegas. <laughs> thought that was awesome. So really proud of the conversations and loved all the questions that everyone shared. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, when I think about this, Adi, when we started and how, you know, you knew that when we went home, I would need someone to talk to other than my <laughs> dog. And you <laughs> were like, let's do this show. Um, and then to think, you know, on a more on a more serious note, the things we ended up tackling, the people um, like Vernay Myers and who came on and really um, at the most pivotal times throughout this whole crisis, brought all this amazing insight. We got all these great questions, as Octavia says, and uh, and I still get people, you know, talking to me about it as not being just. Well, you covered these great things, but also there was something to look forward to and something to do. So I, I feel like in some small way, you know, we help folks through it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I there's such a hunger for insight now. This platform um, really kind of lowers the bar, you know, the ability to to do a program like this, to bring in uh, really expert guests. It's it's you know, it's been easy and it's been well received and it's, it's, I think it points to the future. It's a, it's far less complicated, but a very efficient way of getting, getting people and ideas out there, which brings us to the introduction to our guest. Um, for the past 36 years, Dr. Fauci has been director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In that role, he has served six U.S. presidents, a number that will increase to seven tomorrow. 
He turned 80 on December 24th, and the mayor of Washington, D.C. proclaimed it Dr. Anthony S. Fauci Day. <laughs> now, if you watch the news, you realize every day is Dr. Anthony S. Fauci Day. He's been a tireless spokesperson for how we need to conduct ourselves during the pandemic. And man, is this guy popular. He's the only person in this administration whose popularity has increased over time. So we're going to quickly run a TikTok that gets at the kind of popularity this guy has. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor at the charge against Ebola and Zika. He makes me dreamy, looks sleazy. Dr. House, he can't keep up. He has the hardest body of work. What's your name there? Dr. Anthony Fauci. My name is Dr. Anthony Fauci. And there's a million things I haven't cured. But just you wait, just you wait. Dr. Anthony Fauci. How about that for an introduction? <laughs> let's, let's bring on the man himself, Dr. Fauci. <laughs> Hi, Addy. How you doing? I'm all right. Thank you for doing this. You know, it's a funny thing because there is, there is humor. You know, you are a, a popular guy, at least in some circles. But, you know, your, your topic is, is gravely serious. So I, I'd love to just jump right in. I mean, what I think the question now I have is, what does the end of the pandemic look like? And are you comfortable sketching out a scenario and maybe even a timeline? Yeah. Well, as you know, timelines are always sort of dangerous and precarious when you're dealing with things that are as dynamic as a pandemic. But if you want to look forward at what we can do to end this as an epidemiological phenomenon, namely the types of things where we're in right now, where we're dealing you know, with 200 to 300,000 new infections a day, we're approaching very soon 400,000 total deaths and three to 4,000 deaths per day. The only way that's gonna stop is if you have a combination of a rather substantial universal adherence to the public health measures instead of fragmentation, but also the proper execution and implementation of the vaccine program. Uh, as I've said, and I believe this will turn out to be true, is that if we can get 70 to 85 percent of the population of this country vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and we do it expeditiously over a period of several months, then we will have uh, an umbrella or a cloak or what have you of herd immunity that would really completely turn around the dynamics of the outbreak. But we've got to do that. We, we can have 30 to 40 to 50 percent of people reluctant to be vaccinated. We've got to get the overwhelming majority of people vaccinated. Because when you do that, you know, metaphorically, the virus has no place to go. It looks for susceptibles, but there are no susceptibles. That's the point. Uh, there may be some, but they're protected by the overall protection of what we call herd immunity. I believe that we can attain that if we do it well by early to mid-fall. So if you look at the rollout of the vaccines, the plans that we have, President-elect Biden, a uh, plan that I think is entirely feasible to get a million people vaccinated, 100 million people, excuse me, 100 million people vaccinated in the first 100 days, and then thereafter literally have an open season of vaccine where anybody who wants or needs to get vaccinated will get vaccinated. And if we do that efficiently, 
from April, May, June, July, August, by the time we get to the beginning of the fall, we should have that degree of protection that I think can get us back to some form of normality. Uh, but also, importantly, that we've got to do this, we being the global community, we've got to do it on a global scale. Because if there's an outbreak anywhere, it endangers people anywhere. So even though you could have a good degree of protection in your own country, if you really want to get back to a degree of global normality, you really want to get the entire world vaccinated. Okay, so let me let me bring this to a more personal level. So you are famously a Washington Nationals baseball fan. You know, you talked about some form of normalcy in the fall. When do you expect that you would feel comfortable going to a Nationals game, going to the Kennedy Center, something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not going to be an all and none phenomenon. When I'm talking about finishing this all off and getting most everybody vaccinated by the end of the summer, then you could have a degree of really getting back to some degree of normality in the fall. That doesn't mean between the spring and the summer and the fall that we're going to be completely shut down. I think there will be an impact on the dynamics of the outbreak gradually until we reach that level of herd immunity. So, again, I don't want to be predicting things that don't happen, but we could, if we do it right, by the time we get to the summer, we could have a situation where you would have people in the stands. They may be so somewhat restricted in the sense of not having crowds of people sitting right next to each other. But I think there could be some degree of fan participation in an outdoor sport like baseball by the time we get to the summer. I think that's entirely conceivable. So you talked about 100 million um, doses. Where are we with the, the supply question right now? Because, you know, we've seen there have been problems with the rollout of the vaccine. Um, so the idea of just ramping it up, do we do we have the supply? Do we have the pipeline to ramp it up? Yeah. The numbers that, that President-elect Biden and that you were talking yeah. about? Yeah, I actually had a conversation two nights ago and then ye yesterday morning um, with uh, General Perna, Gus Perna, who's responsible, you know, for the uh, essential rollout of these doses when they'll be ready. And if it looks like now, which I think is going to happen, based on Moderna and Pfizer alone, that if you look at the doses that are going to be anticipated to come in in February, March, and April, and then you look at the fact that we likely, and hopefully it'll be a good degree of efficacy, have yet again another company, Janssen, come in, who is right now in the process of evaluating uh, their results. And if the results look favorable, then you have another supply coming in. I think we'll be able to do that, again, if it's rolled out in an organized way. And in fact, uh, if you look at what President-elect uh, Biden and Vice President-elect Harris have been saying about the rollout, that they're going to be doing things that have not been done before. In other words, to engage pharmacies more, to engage community vaccination centers, to try and use where, where appropriate the Defense Production Act to get things like needles that and, and syringes that uh, might be able to save us a dose on every vial to increase the likelihood that we'll get even more doses than we thought. Those are the kind of things that are already in President-elect Biden's plan that he has discussed. 
Yep. So if you just joined us, this is HBR Now. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Fauci. If you have questions for him, put it in the comments box. We'll try to get to those later. Um, so here's a question that came in. Um, uh, so a few days ago, my father, who you've met, Paul Ignatius, who's just turned 100 years old, uh, he received his first vaccine, the Moderna variant. There's a picture. Um, so he's he's scheduled then to get his booster, and he asked me to ask you, what protection does that really give him? To what extent can he change how uh, he's living his life? Well, tell your dad he shouldn't change anything. You will get some degree of protection. Uh, literally, you know, within 10 to 14 days, it will not be maximum, and we don't know how durable it would be. But what we do know, is that somewhere between 10 and 14 days and then up to 28 days after his boost that he should get 28 days after the prime Moderna, he will be 94 to 95% likelihood that he will be protected then. So even though we know that you get some degree of what we would call temporary protection from the first dose, it's not sufficient at all to protect you to the level that the results of the trial have told us, namely 94 to 95% efficacy. So I'm gonna ask you one more question, then I'm gonna bring back uh, Josh and Octavia to join the conversation. Um, but I wanna ask, you know, now that the Trump administration is coming to a close, I, I have to say your relationship with President Trump has been awkward to watch. I mean, he, he seemed to resent your influence and popularity. He sometimes contradicted your advice. He undermined you at times. I understand that you've been reluctant to talk about all of this because you're obviously serving in an administration. But now that the, his presidency is coming to a close, can you talk a little bit more about how you handled this fraught relationship, balancing your desire to get the truth out versus having to deal with somebody who was your ultimate boss who wasn't always receptive to your messaging? Well, what I did, in, and this is something that I made a decision to be this way uh, a very long time ago, Addy, and, and when I first began advising President Ronald Reagan and then through the subsequent administrations, is to always, always stand by facts and evidence and never be afraid in a respectful way, in a non-confrontative way, to say what the truth is. Uh, it's been particularly problematic here because that would often put me in direct conflict, not emotional conflict, but factual conflict with what the president might say. So obviously th that has not been an easy thing to do, but I just made a commitment to myself 36 and a half years ago that I would always tell the truth. And if that means that the administration, be that the president, the vice president, or the people around him, don't want me around anymore, then that's okay, as long as I've stuck by the principles of evidence and science-based, and not to be afraid of telling somebody something that they may not like to hear. Uh, thus far, that has worked well with me, because even when I had to have, say, things that certain administrations, presidents, or what have you, didn't want to hear, I've done it in a way that hasn't been confrontative or hostile. I've just told the truth. And people react to that in different ways. So 
thus far, you know, although it's been, as you said, somewhat awkward, it's not it's not a happy day when you have to get up in front of national TV and contradict something that the president of the United States says. I take no pleasure in that at all. So, Dr. Fauci, a um, uh, slightly different question here. Um, we still see, you know, as everyone's saying, the virus is just on a rampage um, all over the world. And you still see a lot of people yet kind of disregard what public health officials say to do. Now, you can say that in the United States, some you know, people just say it's exercising you know, individual freedom, this, that. But do you think as public health officials either it hasn't been explained in a way that has connected with enough people or if we just haven't gotten the word. I mean, what is the part of the public health officials on, on this? Well, public health officials have had a very difficult time because if everything we were dealing with was in the context of public health, I don't think you would be seeing this disparity uh, and discrepancy uh, among various sectors in this country about things that seem to be reasonably straightforward, wearing masks, keeping distance, avoiding congregate settings in crowds, particularly indoor. We have gotten caught, and this is so unfortunate, uh, Joshua, it's, it, it, we've gotten caught in being in an extremely divisive society in our own country. And in other parts of the world, too, but certainly it's been very dramatic. Test assess what happened a couple of weeks ago at, at the Capitol, where the issues of public health have been consumed in a divisive context, so that there are people who feel that when we say to avoid congregate settings or wear a mask, that somehow or other we're, we're encroaching upon something that really has nothing to do with with public health. It's like their, their, their freedom. Um, and I think that that's because there's been mixed messages that have come to Washington. I mean, if ever there was something that was contrary to the appropriate implementation of public health measures is when you have divisiveness to the point where something that is truly a public health measure becomes a political issue. That, that, prior to this has been inconceivable that that should happen. And also hostility to the message, which is also very detrimental to trying to get a public health measure across. I mean, the extremes to which that has been put, I think when we go back and look at this in history, we'll be scratching our heads and saying, how did that happen? You know, how was it that you had a region, a state or a city where the hospitals are being overrun, where you have 20 uh, intensive care unit beds and you have 50 people who need intensive care, that in that same town, city, state, there are still people who think it's a hoax, that think it's false news. How can you think that close to 400,000 deaths, which is historic in the proportion like nothing we've ever seen in 102 years, is, is, is a hoax? I mean, look at your own hospitals, look at the people who are dying, and yet, astoundingly, there are people that don't believe that's real. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. And you kind of referenced there um, the mortality rate. I, I want to ask you another a kind of a question on that, because, you know, we've seen recently the Wall Street Journal did some reporting on how the mortality rate might be much, much higher, much worse off 
On the flip side, I'm curious um, what you think the effect are, has been of the therapies or any of the remedies. I mean, are we are we having any success at this point in really keeping a significant numbers of people um, alive or out of ICU? Well, you know, uh, Joshua, it's 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 just a, a phenomenon of medicine that even when you don't have adequate therapies uh, for people, um, which we don't have, you know, the penicillin type cure for this, and it's such a complicated disease as you get into the advanced stage with people, where virological mechanisms are not the only things that are causing the morbidity and mortality. It's some sort of uncontrolled aberrant inflammatory response that leads to many of the severe outcomes that we face, that even in that context, when you take care of a lot of sick people, and there have been a lot of sick people around, you get better at it. You learn things that are not necessarily specific therapies, but that are things that you can do much better with regard to mortality rate. Um, things that you just learn along the way. Having said that, there have been some therapies, particularly in advanced disease, that have shown to be effective. For example, the use of dexamethasone in hospitalized patients with advanced disease requiring a ventilator or requiring high-flow oxygen. Clearly, that has a considerable, significant impact on diminishing 28-day mortality. Then there are other drugs like remdesivir that have a moderate effect on people with moderate to advanced disease. Monoclonal antibodies have been used. We have to get, make sure we get data that has to do with randomized placebo-controlled trials because they have gotten emergency use authorization, uh, and yet we want to make sure we get it to the people who need it, namely those with early disease. But since it requires an intravenous infusion, it's logistically difficult to get that therapy to people at a point when it would do them most benefit, namely early on. So we've done much, much better, significantly better, in the arena of vaccines than we have in the arena of therapy. And we do need to do better, particularly for, for things that I would feel very enthusiastic about pursuing, is that direct antiviral drugs to be given orally to people very early in the course of disease to prevent them from needing to go to a hospital. But that's not something that's easily done. You've got to develop drugs the way we developed for HIV. And that endeavor, as you remember, was spectacularly successful in prolonging the lives in a meaningful way, uh, almost to a normal type of a lifespan for HIV, uh, persons with HIV. And that required lifelong therapy. I don't think you would need that. I think you would need maybe two weeks of therapy for individuals if you get a good direct antiviral drug. So there's a lot that needs to be done. But the big success, obviously, has been in prevention by vaccine. So, Dr. Fauci, there are scores of working parents watching this show while overseeing their kids' online learning at home. Pfizer was the first COVID-19 vaccine developer to include children in trials back in September. Moderna is reportedly struggling to recruit enough 12 to 17-year-olds to take part in their clinical trials. In your opinion, will a vaccine for kids be ready for the 2021 school year? You know, I can't guarantee that, Octavia. It might not be. You know, there's always a delicate balance 
when you're talking about children who are vulnerable, they are the vulnerable population, it's tough for them to give informed consent. And you always want to make sure that you have something that clearly is safe and effective in an adult population before you start testing it on children. So right now, what we will be doing is going into children at age de-escalation, starting off with a certain age and going down and down so that you get enough phase one safety as well as immunogenicity data that you could bridge it to the results of the big efficacy trial, the phase three that you did in adults. I'm not sure you're gonna be able to get every age group vaccinated before the fall term of 2021, Octavia. I hope that we do get enough data to begin approaching that so that the children could be protected by vaccine. Uh, uh, but again, I, I can't guarantee that right now. I hope we do do that, but but it it should be close because once you get the the trial and you and you really feel um, confident of the safety and the efficacy and the immunogenicity in the children, then we could go ahead and start vaccinating them. Yeah, understood. My daughters will be encouraged to hear that. Yeah. Um, this has been a year unlike any other for us. But you leave me constantly wondering, how does Dr. Fauci do it? In addition to government briefings and countless media interviews, I read that you're still an attending physician and treat patients every week. How do you manage your time and how do you deal with burnout? Well, you know, I, that's a good question. People ask me that all the time. And when, when you, you know, integrate into the way you look at your own life as to the enormity of this problem uh, and the fact that what you are doing could have such a substantial impact, uh, you get a certain degree of energy and resiliency that, you know, you, you're not really even sure you ever had. And it's one of those things that, you know, to use the words of some people colloquially, you just suck it up and do it. Uh, it. It takes, you know, a lot of time and a lot of energy. But when you focus on what your your primary goal is and how important it is to the health of this country and ultimately extrapolated to the health of the world, you just do it. It's my life. It's all I do. I mean, that's it. Uh, and uh, someday, sometime I could maybe catch up on things that I might have liked to have been done. But right now, this just consumes me and I don't resent it. I mean, I, I want it to consume me because, you know, the stakes are such that there's nothing else more important to me than this. Okay, now I, um, we have some questions from uh, lots and lots of questions from the crowd. By the way, uh, Dr. Fauci, I know you do lots and lots of interviews, but I, after this is all over and you do go to a baseball game, the three interviewers here, you're going to go with us, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll be distant and we're yeah, not. That's right, that's right. But we're gone. Um, Brooke from Boston, actually, right where I am, asked uh, a nice question here, which is just, once I'm vaccinated, what can I do to help? You know, once you're vaccinated, what you can do to help, you know, is to continue to try and encourage people around you, maybe your family and your friends, to get vaccinated. <laughs> because, you know, vaccination, as, as I've mentioned so many times, will protect you against uh, clinically apparent disease, symptomatology. 
it's that's about 94 to 95% efficacious. It's almost 100% efficacious in preventing you from getting serious disease and, and death. It's, so it's really good in that regard. But if we want to get back to normal, just you or a few other people being vaccinated doesn't change the dynamics of the outbreak. We want to change the dynamics of the outbreak. So to get as many people vaccinated and say, you know, here I am, I got vaccinated, I'm doing fine, you know, no big deal, no, no adverse events, and now I'm one of the people that are protected against symptomatic disease. You're not necessarily protected against getting infected because we don't know yet whether the vaccine prevents you from getting infected but not having any symptoms. Namely, you could still have virus in your nasopharynx. We're working on understanding that better. But, but the beauty of a mass of people getting vaccinated is that when you do that, the virus, you know, if you want to make it a metaphor, is looking around for people to, to infect, and there's not a lot of people to infect. So the entire dynamics of the outbreak gets turned around. And that's what you talk about when you say you've crushed the outbreak. You know, we did it with polio. We did it globally with smallpox. We did it with measles in most of the countries in the developed world, except for the anti-vax movement, which has kind of gotten in the way of that. But you can take the most formidable virus if you have a good vaccine and essentially box it out. And that's what we hope to do. So if you want to help, get your friends, your colleagues and your family to get vaccinated. So, Dr. Fauci, um, we have a question from Tapua from Zimbabwe. And Tapua asks, when do you expect global herd immunity to be achieved? Which regions do you see lagging behind? And what initiatives do you see happening to bring these regions forward? Well, that's, that's a great question. And I think the first thing we need to realize is that we live in a global community. And what happens in another country, be it Zimbabwe or Kenya or South Africa or wherever, it's going to have an impact on the world. I think, practically speaking, when you think about the logistics of companies, and there will be multiple companies, making enough vaccine to be able to, as you say, Octavia, vaccinate the world, it likely will take at least a year or two uh, to do that. Um, when we do that, we've got to be prepared that, you know, there will be, and we've heard about mutants arising to be able to modify vaccines, to be able to come in and maybe, you know, after a couple of years or so, give someone a boost. We've got to be able to be nimble, but we've got to do it as a global community. You know, I don't know how long it takes. It's not going to happen completely in this calendar year. I'll guarantee you that there's just not enough vaccine that will have been produced to do that. But I think in a couple of years, we may be able to do that. Um, so I have a question, Dr. Fauci. I mean, we, um, you know, there has been this conflict over, you know, what, what's the right thing to do? There have been disagreements. I guess my question is, do you have any regrets? You know, do you, do you in how you have responded to the crisis and how you've tried to message a response to the crisis, um, do you have any regrets with how it's rolled out since this all started? Uh, well, you know, regrets uh, for myself personally or for regrets of what happened? <laughs> yeah, well, plenty of regrets for what happened. <laughs> those, are two, yeah. those are two separate questions, Adi. You know, I, I, you know, it's interesting when people 
um, ask you that question. You know, if if we'll put it this way, this was a completely unknown situation that was evolving right before our eyes. So if you knew in January 21st what we know now, you know, when we got the first case in this country, um, you know, would you call it a regret? Well, I didn't know back then. We didn't have any idea how much transmission was from an asymptomatic person uh, to a person who was uninfected. We just didn't know that. We didn't know that masks worked and we had a shortage of masks at the time. So if we knew that this virus had the capability of spreading insidiously without any symptoms in an individual who's spreading it, we would have probably done things much differently earlier on, but we didn't. Is that a regret? Yeah, I guess so. I would have loved to have been totally knowledgeable on January 21st about what was ahead of us in the subsequent months, but we didn't know. So, I mean, you know, to say regret, the mistake or whatever, it really depends on the context in which you ask that question. You've got to act on the science that you know it at the time. When the evidence changes, you've got to be humble enough and nimble enough to change policy, to change recommendations. So uh, Volker from Frankfurt has a question about the vaccine technology, essentially asking that it seems that the mRNA technology is very, very effective. Um, at least for this disease that we're facing, but will this change how we develop vaccines for other diseases? Uh, that's a very good question. And the answer is likely yes. We have learned, you know, when we started with the mRNA technology for COVID-19, you know, with two companies using the same platform, there was skepticism, concern, and maybe even criticism that we were doing something that was unproven technology with regard to the development of vaccines. Fortunately, the people who were skeptical were proven to be, you know, maybe understandably skeptical, but incorrect in that it worked out very, very well. So in answer to your question, I'm sure we're starting and we'll start to see the attempts to use this platform technology for other uh, pathogens that we have been unsuccessful in developing a vaccine for. And that is, you know, HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, and maybe even influenza, uh, because this seems to be a pretty flexible, adaptable platform technology. So we have a question from Pierre Paolo from Naples, Italy. Um, how did the media and social media influence the perception of the pandemic? And do you think they could have done more to better inform and warn people. Oh, you know, I think it's absolutely a double-edged sword, Octavia, because, I mean, the social media gets important information out when it's true information. It's a good positivity. But it is also the source of an extraordinary amount of misrepresentation, conspiracy theories, hoax theories, and things like that. So, you know, social media, certainly it cuts both ways. It certainly gets information out quickly, but it can be absolutely destructive 
when it comes to the spreading of completely false information. Are you, Dr. Fauci, are you changing your lifestyle at all these days? Is there anything that you're doing again that you hadn't done since since March or April? You know, are, are you allowing yourself any little bit of normalcy at this point? <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, Adi, but my life is pretty unidimensional. <laughs> you know, you get up at five o'clock in the morning and you just work like crazy until late at night. You go to bed, you wake up and you do the same thing. Um, uh, I don't allow myself doing anything other than just exercising for about an hour or so. I used to do it out during lunchtime here in the beautiful park areas around the NIH, but now I do it late at night when I go home. I take maybe 45 minutes 40 or an hour out, go out for a I used to run, but I power walk now, then come back and continue to work. So there really isn't much that I do. It's 24-7, the same thing over and over again. So the um, another person here, Lorraine from Ireland, she wants to know if uh, this shot or the shots that we're getting now, is this going to become an annual thing? Or when 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 might we know that? You know, we that's a great question. Uh, we don't know that right now because we don't know two things. We don't know the durability of the protection against the what we call the wild type virus. We know that viruses evolve. You get variants, you get mutants. We already know that in the UK they had one that, and it's in this country too, um, that is much more efficient in transmissibility, doesn't appear to have any impact on uh, virulence at this point. We're looking very carefully at the potential impact on vaccine protection and monoclonal antibody protection. The one in South Africa is more formidable to be a more concerned. It seems to be a, a one that might have a significant impact on some of the monoclonal antibodies that we're hearing that, but we don't know for sure. So when you talk about requiring a vaccine that you might have to give every year, every other year, you have to take into account how durable is the immunity? And as the virus evolves, does the protection that's afforded by the vaccine in question cover the evolving virus? Right now, it looks like the vaccines that we have now, despite the evolving of the virus, seems to be one that still is under the umbrella of protection from the immune response that it's induced. But you gotta follow that really carefully. You gotta make sure you're all over following in surveillance the evolution of the virus so that if it does change enough that you wanna update your vaccine and maybe give another booster after a year or so or what have you, I'm not saying we have to do that. I'm saying we have to be prepared that that is a possibility. And the variant that we've seen out of the UK or that gets talked about is talked about as just being a lot more contagious or transmissible is not as opposed to being a worse, getting a worse case of it, right? There's a distinction. there. Yeah, there is, Joshua. But the only problem with that is that we shouldn't be lulled into complacency and say, well, maybe it's more transmissible, but it isn't a more serious disease. Well, the more people that get infected, quantitatively, the more people that are going to get hospitalized. And quantitatively, the more people that get hospitalized, 
the more people are going to be seriously ill and die. So you don't have to impact on a one-to-one -one basis the virulence of a virus or the strength of the virus to hurt you. But the more people you get infected, the more serious situation you're going to be in. And that's exactly what's happening in the UK. Mm -hmm. yep. you're, you're muted, Octavia. You're muted, Octavia. So sorry about that. Dr. Fauci, um, Alejandra from Illinois would love to know, when will it be safe for employees to go back to the office? Well, you know, that really depends, as, as, as I mentioned uh, in answer to a few other questions. It depends on where you work, what the nature of the work is. I think we better be careful about when you say, it, you know, it's a reasonable question, Octavia, go back to the office. Uh, you know, right now I can work uh, virtually, uh, many things of what I need is in my office. So I'm back in my office, but there's almost nobody here. You know, it's a building that can contain, you know, a couple of thousand people. There may be five people in the whole building. So it really is safe for me. When you say go back to the normality of a congregating, I think it's going to have to wait until the level of infection in the community is low enough that the virus is not a threat in the sense of people who, if you put them in a congregate setting indoors, you're having a high risk of infection. So again, it gets back to what I mentioned before. It's really going to depend on getting the overwhelming proportion of the population vaccinated so that you can approach some degree of normality. It's going to be gradual. I don't think that once people get vaccinated, you just throw the mask away or say, doesn't matter where I go or what I do, I'm okay. I think it's going to be gradual. Hopefully that will be in a period of several months so that we're still in 2021 when that happens. But there's no guarantee because I can't guarantee how many of the people are going to get vaccinated. So one thing I don't think we've covered yet, and I'm, I'm just seeing there are a lot of audience questions uh, on this topic. Here's one, Abby, from Massachusetts. Really a question, will there be enough timely vaccines for the second round? Um, for Americans who are receiving round one now? Yes. Any chance we're going to run out of that yeah. supply? That's a great question. And, and, and thank you for asking it to give me the opportunity. The, the confidence now that people like General Perna, who's responsible for this, have that the cadence of the rollout of doses would be such that if you got a first dose, you will be prioritized that when vaccine comes out, you will get your second dose. So as vaccine is rolled out, the first thing you want to do is make sure that those who've gotten their first dose and their second doses do, that those people get their second dose. Then the next priority is to give the first dose with the number of vaccine doses that you have available, you give it to people for their first dose. And then when the next round comes, those people who've gotten the first dose and their second doses do have priority over people who are going to be able to get first doses. So we should put aside the concern because there appears to be, and I mean, that's not what I do, but I have confidence in what General Perner is saying, that the, that the rolling out of doses should be in a way that there's enough confidence in the ability of the companies to produce it, that getting a person a second dose will always be the first priority. 
And, and just to follow up so that it's clear to everyone, if you don't get that second dose, or if you're late in, in you know, missing the window for the second dose, what's the, what happens? What's the risk? Well, the risk is that you're not going to get the 94 to 95% protection. And number two, the durability of the response is unclear because the study showed that with Moderna, you should get the dose 28 days later, the boost. And with Pfizer, you should get it 21 days later with the boost. So A, you're not going to get complete protection and it won't be durable. I mean, you could miss it, Audi, by a day or two, but when you're talking about either not giving it or missing it by several months, that's not good. Okay, uh, we appreciate that. So we're out of time. There are a lot more questions that we just can't ask, but Dr. Fauci, I want to thank you. You have, um, you know, it's been great. You have been bestowed a number of honors, but the big one is you're our first and only second time guest. So, um, <laughs> so I really thank you. That was a fantastic discussion and uh, we really are appreciative of the work that you're doing. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Adi. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Octavia. Great to see you yeah. guys. You thank too. You. All right. So uh, I want to thank Accenture for coming along for the ride during season two and being our sponsor. I want to thank my co-hosts, Josh and Octavia, for what was another really fun and productive season. And I want to thank the whole team, Dave, Scott, Kelsey, Alex, Andy, Dustin, Julia, Emily, and anyone I may have forgotten. Just a great team. It's been a, a joy putting this second season out. I want to thank all of you who have who've watched this season. I hope we've, I hope we've helped uh, as we're all trying to navigate these uh, complex issues. So uh, that is it. We do not have a show next week. We'll be back when we're back. But um, thank you all for, for watching season two. Which made yeah, this the, the weird song sound kind of cool, but it's it had a fading sound to it. Yeah, that's just how hip we are. We just don't know it. <laughs> I thought somebody was playing lead on top of the can can music. It's Ellie in the other studio. I attempted to do that during the Panera. Um, I had the guitar close enough. I was like, oh, maybe I should play some lead here. That would have been awesome. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. <laughs> So I have to say, Octavia, you joined us for season two. That was amazing working with you. You uh, you were a fantastic co-host, came up with a lot of interesting questions, interesting angles, and it was really a joy to work with you. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you, guys, all of you. It's just been so fantastic. I don't know what I'm going to do with my Tuesdays. We can still do this. We don't have to broadcast. Yeah, we'll do this for fun. Yeah, maybe we'll get a sponsor. If we don't, I guess we could do a Kickstarter, you know, a, a dollar at a time. Eventually, we'll get the sponsorship money. That's about what we get, too. People out there who say you enjoy the show. Speaking of Kickstarters, we were, we were talking in the in the team chat while this was going on. We think we should do a Kickstarter for Dr. Fauci to have a vacation. With that. Yeah. He's been, his schedule sounds... Uh, he wouldn't want to go on a vacation. Well, not currently, but no, I'm saying I don't think, we'll put it I don't... in escrow for... I think I, he he loves what he does so much. He really does. It's, I mean, he's so obvious. obsessed by it. I mean, I was talking to his um to his assistant, and he just this is his life. This is this is what he wants to do more than anything else. So, 
I know it's incredible when you think that President-elect Biden will be the seventh president. That's that crazy. Elected. I know. I had um, I had messed up the beginning, so I didn't even get to show the montage. But if you see sort Ooh. of all the presidents, you know, there's a young spry. You know, look at George H. Clinton. Um, it's you sort know, of like just Edgar for... Hoover. You know, it's just who who <laughs> stayed in a in a job like this for so long. Exactly. Similarities end there, though. Yeah. So, um, good stuff. Yeah. No, it was great. A good note to end on. I All right. Like so, uh, so what a season. I don't want to talk about it because then we'll get sad. But um, oh. hopefully we'll oh, be back. I know. I'm such an ugly crier, too. <laughs> I know. That I want to say. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll turn on the waterworks after the show. We don't do this, Dave. You have, we'll be doing a cooking show together. I'm quite sure of it. I love it. I, I can do that. <laughs> I would watch that. Dave World stuff. That's your new Tuesday spot right there. Yeah, there we go. go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I can, yeah, let's cook it up. Let's do it. All right, folks. Great All show. Right. All right, guys. Uh, what a All bummer. Right, hopefully, uh, hopefully we reconvene soon. Good. But until then, I love you guys. Love you guys. <laughs> right back at you, Dave.